Welcome to the Northeast School of Pediatrics Journal Club. Hello, I'm Dr. Andy Mellon, consultant paediatrician and head of the School of Pediatrics in the Northeast of England. This is the podcast for the School of Pediatrics Journal Club for June 2020. The main theme for this month relates to papers that summarise other papers, namely systematic reviews, and then the use of meta-analysis as a statistical technique to make sense of the data from such reviews. Our recommended reference text is Tricia Greenhoff's very readable book, How to Read a Paper, in its sixth edition. And there are two chapters of particular relevance to this month's journal club. Chapter two includes strategies for searching the literature, And we would encourage review of three particular sections, one relating to levels of evidence, a second relating to the use of synthesised sources to find relevant publications, and the third in relation to this month's main theme is a section on pre-appraised sources of evidence. The chapter also has a series of exercises which are likely to be of major benefit to trainees studying for the MRCPCH written and clinical exams but also to help those who are prepping for the START assessment during Level 3 training. The second chapter of major importance this month is Chapter 9, which goes through approaches to reading papers that summarise other papers, and it provides a very reader-friendly introduction to the use of meta-analysis as a statistical technique. During this month's recorded journal club, the reviewing team used a critical appraisal tool from the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine, CEBM, to support a structured approach to review of a systematic review and use of meta-analysis. This is available easily by searching for Systematic Review Tool on the CEBM website, which is www.cebm.net. The paper being reviewed is titled Prophylactic Early Erythropoietin for Neuroprotection in Preterm Infants, a Meta-Analysis. The first author is Hendrik Fischer, and it was published in the journal Pediatrics in May of 2017, volume 139. We would recommend reading the paper before listening to the Journal Club episode, if at all possible. The Journal Club was linked to slides shown by presenters, which will be made available via the uh, Health Education Northeast School of Pediatrics website, which is at madeinheeney.hee.nhs.uk. The host for this month's podcast is Dr Ugo Offer, who is a senior paediatric trainee. He had support from three other paediatric trainees, Dr. Amy Bonavia, Dr. Jamie Slack, and Dr. Ina Shim van der Loof. Welcome to the second episode of our Paediatric Regional Virtual Journal Club. I'm Ugo, and today I'll be facilitating the session. So today's session is really just building on some of the themes that we and talked about during the last Journal Club session. Today, the focus will be on systematic reviews and meta-analysis and how we can use this to inform clinical decision-making. But first off, by inner on the remdesivir um, trial that we spoke about during the last Journal Club, and then we take it from there. So Inna, over to you. As Ugo said, I'm Ina, and I was just going to briefly talk to you about remdesivir. We obviously talked about it quite extensively a month ago, of particular interest because I'm an immunologist and was uh, one of the COVID research fellows in the last few months and was actually involved in recruiting patients to this trial and to other trials. So a bit more about that later. So we heard about a small 
Chinese study that was still uh, organized by Gilead, but was underpowered because the crisis was effectively controlled, according to the authors. And so, and so no major changes in outcome through the treatment of remdesivir were found in that particular study. And the ACT trial, um, which is the adaptive clinical trial for the treatment of COVID, was published in the New England Journal of Medicine quite recently. Same company obviously makes, makes the drug. And we had mentioned that they had already released some of their preliminary data. So what I do when I look at these studies, and I'm sure we'll go through this over the, the next few months as we go through studies, it's quite useful to start with this kind of enrollment and randomization to look at exactly um, how, pe- how many people were recruited and were they all followed up. Uh, and it looks all pretty similar to between the, the, the remdesivir and the placebo. And worth looking at some of the outcome tables as well, especially if you're not going to read the full, the full paper. So the important thing that I just wanted to highlight, and this has been extensively covered in the news as well, is that the median time to recovery is significantly reduced in patients who were given remdesivir. Now, it doesn't maybe feel significant from a medical point of view, but it's definitely statistically significant. It goes down from 15 to 11 days. And I think the point for me from this study is that on a kind of health system level, that's that's quite a significant change. And, and, and if those beds are, are for very sick patients, then you're saving quite a lot, of, uh, a lot of money. They do a lot of subgroup analysis as well. They use a very similar setup uh, in terms of ordinal scoring, as we talked about in the other study. Um, and it's, it's a very similar um, uh, similar setup. The key thing that's uh, interesting to highlight from the actual article, and I urge you all to, to read it, because this is now obviously peer-reviewed, is that the outcomes were changed as the trial was already running. So this was apparently done by trial statisticians who were uh, becoming aware of, of data that's really the initial outcome of having, um, having a difference at day 15 was not going to be long enough um, because the course of COVID was, was, was longer in most patients. And so the primary outcome uh, was moved to a key secondary outcome. And it's always important to kind of think about that. There's a lot of comment in editorials about the fact that this happened and did this happen because they saw the data. And are you just then looking for differences in the data, which obviously is, is statistically uh, a bit of an issue, is that this is particularly beneficial for patients who require supplemental oxygen and they do all sorts of subgroup analysis. I'm not going to dwell too much on this, but this is just to, to, to sort of close the loop on the remdesivir and urge you all to read the the primary papers. Um, There's a lot of uh, this stuff in the news at the moment. I just want to urge a lot of caution. So the recovery trial just came out with a um, press release and they had done a press release early in June and they did a second press release um, on the 16th of June, which are covered by these BBC articles initially showing that hydroxychloroquine um, doesn't particularly save lives and had no difference in one of their groups. And then that dexamethasone reduces mortality in a subgroup of patients, those uh, that, that are requiring supplement oxygen by 30%. Now, there's been a lot of controversy about this. I've been involved with the recovery trial myself, and it's a very, uh, it is randomized, but the way that they randomize is, is a bit contentious. It's not blinded. The way the protocol was set up, uh, I would urge caution when you read when you read anything about this. The other thing that's obviously important to know is that none of this data at this point is published. And, and that's something that's really important to be aware of in this kind of really heightened research atmosphere. And there's some interesting resources to go to if you if you are reading something and you're, I would always start with a very skeptical point of you. There was an article in the in the in the BMJ recently about this PIMS about PIMS TS, which is obviously very interesting. But peer review, if it is happening, is happening very rapidly, and there are mistakes being made. So the Lancet podcast did an extensive review of an article on hydroxychloroquine, where 
typos and things that are picked up in peer review, like the raw data not being presented in the right way, that all these sorts of things are slipping through because peer review is being accelerated. On top of that, there are these huge preprint servers that are seeing, that have kind of come into existence at the same time or, 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 or recently, and so are, are a very good place for people to put their publications. And there are loads and loads of them. These are two of the big ones, but there are loads and loads of papers that are being added to this. They, these papers are not peer reviewed. And there's obviously a sense of urgency, but just be very skeptical with everything that you read and definitely go go back to the raw data if you can. So I'll leave it, I'll leave it at that. Thank you very much for that, Anna. I think um, that was a very useful update on remdesivir and some very useful learning points have been raised. Um, and I encourage everyone to go and read a bit more um, about it if they're interested. I think now we'll move on to um, today's theme, which is on systematic reviews and meta-analysis. And she will briefly be giving an overview of what the principles of the systematic review and meta-analysis involve and why it's important to clinical practice. Um, so over to you, Amy. Um, yeah, as Hugo said, each week in these journal clubs, we are planning on focusing on a different element of critical appraisal and research. We're going to be basing these on chapters in our core text, which is How to Read a Paper by Trisha Greenhow. I would really recommend getting a copy if you can, either through library, electronic library, Amazon, whatever, because it is actually really easy reading and explains aspects of critical appraisal clearly and effectively. So this week, we have focused on systematic reviews and meta-analysis, which ties in really well for the paper of the week that we're going to come to. Okay. Um, but first, as I said, I'm going to do a quick summary of the key points of the pre-reading as a recap for potentially those who haven't got hold of the book yet. So... A systematic review, um, as I'm sure you've read lots of them, so they are an overview of primary studies which is conducted in a way that is explicit, transparent and reproducible. The most well-known ones that I'm sure you've seen are the reviews from the Cochrane Library. So the book goes into quite a lot of detail about systematic reviews, but the thing I found really interesting was that it outlines a list of steps that all systematic reviews should follow. I was going to go through this briefly because I think it gives a better understanding of how they're done and then also how we can approach their analysis. So there are eight steps to go through. So the first one that all systematic reviews should do are stating the objectives of the review and outlining the eligibility criteria. Following that, they need to search for relevant trials that may fit this eligibility criteria. So the book goes into a checklist of sources that systematic reviews should follow. Um, for example, Medline databases, the Cochrane Clinical Trials Register, references from primary sources, and also raw data from published trials. There are some of the sources as well that they talk through. They then need to evaluate the trials and tabulate the characteristics of each trial identified. So they should be assessed on their methodological quality, so looking at the bias that they've had, looking at the precision of the trials, so very briefly looking at the width of the confidence interval, and also the external validity of each of the trials. The review should then apply the eligibility criteria and justify any exclusions that it's made from the review. It should then assemble the most complete data set feasible and then analyse the results of the eligible trials using statistical synthesis of the data. So this is meta-analysis. We should then compare the alternative analysis and then they should prepare a critical summary of the review, which is what we see, the finished product. So this should go through the aims, describe the materials, the methods and reporting the results. So just keep this in mind when we're looking at reviews. So meta-analysis itself is when data from numerous small studies is combined, and this may produce a statistically significant finding, which is not apparent when you look at each paper alone. So there are many advantages to this. 
Um, firstly, you'd hope that bias was minimised as long as the selection and appraisal was done correctly, and therefore any conclusions you draw should be more reliable and accurate. They tend to be easy to interpret, so large amounts of information can be assimilated quickly. And by formally comparing studies, we should be able to establish some generalizability and consistency, which also allows us to identify any reasons for heterogeneity. There are some disadvantages. Um, so we can replicate flaws in the original studies. So for example, if all the studies have used a subtherapeutic dose of a drug, then these erroneous results will be magnified in the review. So the next section of the pre-reading I'll touch on briefly was called meta-analysis for the non-statistician. I don't know about you, but that sounded absolutely perfect for me. I've only done very minimal statistics in the past and tend to relearn them for exams and journal clubs, but often forget in between. So meta-analysis tends to be presented in a fairly standard form, which is shown here. This is just one off the internet, but it's a forest plot of the pooled odds ratios. I'm not going to recap the premise of odds ratios and confidence intervals here as we have limited time, but it's a good thing to check over if you're not quite sure. The key thing to remember in meta-analysis here is that the smaller the confidence interval, the more precise the results. So this is shown by the width of the line on the forest plot for each trial. So the smaller the line, generally the more precise the results. The key vertical line you should be looking at is the line of no effect, which is the line at 1.0 here. If the confidence interval or the result from a trial does cross this line, then it means either there is no significant difference between the two groups or that the sample size itself was too small. At the bottom of forest plots, there is normally a diamond, as you can see here, which represents the pool data from all the trials used in that review. Again, the key thing to do is to look and see if it crosses the line of no effect. If the diamond does not cross the line, it doesn't necessarily mean that all patients would benefit from the treatment, but does signify that the average patient involved in the trial is likely to benefit. So just keep that in mind. The last section of the pre-reading I'll touch on briefly is heterogeneity and homogeneity. So homogeneity um, is the premise that the results of an individual trial are compatible with the results of the others in a review and heterogeneity being the opposite. We can estimate this by looking at a forest plot. So look and see whether all the confidence intervals overlap. There are more statistical analyses, analysis of heterogeneity that can be done, which Jamie's going to cover later on. I would highly recommend reading this chapter if you haven't already, as it does explain this in a lot more detail. Okay, so that was our pre-reading. So we're going to go on to the paper. So I'm going to do a quick um, summary of the paper, and then Jamie is going to start us on some critical analysis. Okay. So hopefully you've all read the paper. Um, it was um, on the prophylactic early erythropoietin for neuroprotection in preterm infants, a meta-analysis. This is a paper that was first published in the Pediatrics Journal in 2017. So their objectives were they were investigating whether prophylactic recombinant human erythropoietin improves neurodevelopmental outcomes. They stated this was selected because obviously improving neurodevelopmental outcomes in neonatology is a major goal. And also erythropoietin is one of the most promising pharmacological substances for this. They did meta-analysis of randomized control trials, specifically selecting those which use erythropoietin in preterm infants versus a control, and also reported neurodevelopmental outcomes at 18 to 24 months corrected age. 
The primary outcome the review was looking at were the number of infants with a mental developmental index or an MDI of less than 70 on the Bailey scales of infant development. They also looked at some secondary outcomes, which were a psychomotor developmental index of less than 70, cerebral palsy, visual impairment and hearing impairment. The authors used Medline, Embase and the Cochrane Central Register of Control Trials, which they searched in December 2016, and some other sources of information which we'll cover in the analysis. There were four randomised control trials included in this review, which analysed the results of 1,133 infants in total. So I'm sure we're going to look into this in a lot more detail, but there results where they said that prophylactic erythropoietin did reduce the incidence of children with an MDI of less than 70 with an odds ratio of 0.51 and a p-value of less than 0.005. There was no statistically significant effect in any of the secondary outcomes that they looked at. Okay, so I'm going to hand over to Jamie, who's going to start the critical appraisal of this paper. Thank you, uh, Amy and Ina, for everything that was said before. We will cover some of, a little bit of the same thing again, but I'm going to break it down bit by bit to sort of critically appraise the article. I've used the CEBM sort of questions to highlight it areas to look at. This is the trial, so prophylactic early erythropoietin for neuroprotection in preterm infants uh, meta-analysis, published in 2017. So the first is always, what question did the systematic review address? And we sort of break this down into population interventions, comparisons, and outcomes. So the group they wanted to look at were defined as very premature infants. Um, and by the definition that uh, we use a very premature, that's less than 32 weeks. I think my first comment about this really is that there is a huge difference between a 23-weeker and a 32-weeker. So actually, this is a very diverse population of patients. And an intervention on someone at the 23-week scale might have a very different effect to that at much closer to term at 32 weeks. When you look through the papers they critiqued in this systematic review, they define their population as less than 32 weeks, but actually one of the papers uses a weight cutoff rather than a gestational cutoff. Um, they just say that should we be doing weight cutoffs? Should we be doing um, gestation cutoffs? Is it going to be that small babies actually might profit from this uh, intervention as well? It's the group that we do see on, it, on a NICU, so they didn't look for specific treatment regimes. So when you read through the paper, there's this idea of a high-dose early treatment and continuous treatment, or there's an idea of just low-dose continuous treatment. So this hasn't looked at that. It's only looked at any treatment regime, which, again, might show a different at the results level. In terms of the comparisons, they wanted it to be against a control group or a placebo, which all of the trials did, and they wanted it to be part of a randomized control trial. They were very, very strict about that. And in terms of outcomes, they were looking at, their primary outcome was looking at a neurodevelopmental um, as per Bailey's. Uh, so they used Bailey's 2, there is now Bailey's 3, going on to Bailey's 4, and um, defined their mental development index as less than 70, which is defined as sort of two standard deviations away from the norm. They did reference papers for if the RCT had used Bailey's 3, how they were going to correct that. But again, that's how comparable Bailey's 2 and Bailey's 3 are in the exact for an individual child is a bit unclear. So I think they used less than 85 for Bailey's 3. So the next is, have we got all the studies that we wanted to get? Uh, have we looked at all the evidence out there to point for this? Again, they were very much we want to look at randomized control trials. Actually, in the very introduction, they state there are two new trials, and we want to look at what effect they've had on the um, overall data pool, rather than we wanted to answer this question. Randomized control trials, apart from the systematic view, are sort of the highest tier of evidence, but it's a very, very limited pool of studies 
it goes on to explain the rationale for the search terms used, and it does state some of the search terms in the article itself, um, and then there's a long list of them in the supplementary data, as they usually are, and talks about what databases they used. Um, these all seem you know, very reasonable databases. The search terms seem pretty good. They also looked at trial registries to say, are there any more are there any up-and-coming trials that are not yet published? Previous systematic reviews, uh, previous articles to say, are there any references from those articles that have got key bits of data that we should include? <coughs> given the fact that they've given themselves a very narrow question, they probably got all the data. But there are probably other papers that might have might have slightly different outcomes or a slightly different patient set that might add to this as well. So really, I think we've probably got a very small pool of evidence in terms of the papers we're looking at. And I get a feeling that, in a way, that this review was almost written on the back of the two trials that were published to say, right, now there are two more trials. Let's have a look at how the data has changed. It doesn't feel like they've just asked a pure question, if that makes sense. Um, just a couple of questions from the uh, from me, but also from the chat. So do you have any idea of why they picked the RCTs only? So they've st it doesn't state particularly in the paper. They've said you know, we're looking for that high tier of evidence and that we want to include this. It's the Song et al trial that they're trying to include as to, into the data set. The question here is, has a therapeutic intervention made a difference for which randomized control trial is the best form of evidence? So that's why they've rationalized it down to that. And do you have any helpful way of evaluating whether they have included all the relevant papers without going to do your own search? So I think that's a, it's an excellent question because part of it is do a bit of literature search yourself and look. This trial did it beautifully in that it told you actually there were 86 other trials that were slightly different with different outcomes. But yeah, it, it's making sure you've done a quick literature search yourself, looked for other reviews that are sitting around. Um, yes, not such an in-depth thing, but to see if there's anything that's been missed. One of the other papers I'll sort of mention at the end, which is a newer paper has had some debate around it. So were the criteria used to select articles for inclusion um, appropriate? So I actually felt in the discussion of the paper, these could have been a bit clearer. Quite often you read a paper and it says our inclusion criteria is and our exclusion criteria are, and I just felt this one was not quite as clear as it could have been in the way it was laid out. So their inclusion criteria, so randomized controlled trial, used erythropoietic in, in preterm infants. Importantly, it's in any language. We're not restricting a whole group of papers just purely because we can't read them. Exclusion-wise, so they wanted to know no control slash placebo group, no neurodevelopmental outcomes. Uh, so I think there were lots of papers looking at other bits, but no, str not strictly neurodevelopmental outcome. And they wanted it to be published in a peer-reviewed journal. So the comment I made at the bottom was that it wasn't actually limited to the initial population stated. And I think because they keep sometimes talking about in the induction in AIMS, their shift of preterm from this idea, of, is it the 32 weeks or is it the less than 28 weeks? Are we talking about very or extreme preterm? And it just gets a bit lost. And as I said before, one of their papers actually uses weight rather than gestation cutoff, which means we don't necessarily know that these are all premature babies. Did they include any preterms who had other neuroprotective treatments? Was that an exclusion criteria? I didn't spot that as an exclusion criteria in the paper. So they would have included anything plus or minus EPO? Yeah, anything plus or minus EPO. So yeah, there's, yeah there wasn't any mention about, you know, prophylactic transfusions or the too little for cooling probably, but that type of baby. And then the next question is about the validity of the studies. So actually it's very nice when there is only four studies to look at, which makes it a lot easier. So they use the Cochrane method for looking at validity. 
the big concern is if you look at the four trials, actually the Songatel trial, which is the last trial, is the vast majority of the patients. It's almost, I think, half the patients. And when we come to a diagram later, we'll have a look. And that trial had no blinding to treatment, which they said put it into a high risk category. It was, I believe, blinded on the results end, but the clinicians giving knew whether they were giving EPO. There was also a question about a potential reporting bias. So there was a change in the inclusion criteria and the primary outcome within the Song et al. trial as well. And as Ina sort of very nicely pointed out when she was talking about some of the COVID stuff earlier, is this because we're actually just fishing for an answer? Or was there a valid region to swap this at that point? They did fox plots, which are in the supplementary um, data as well, to see is there validity across the studies, but there was only four studies, which makes that trickier to sort of say. So do the authors overlap? Oh, I hadn't checked all through all the authors. I didn't look. Your gut feeling seems to really suggest that this is a re-reporting... Of the bigger trial. That's, that's my question, I think, at the end of the day. Is that big... Well, that big trial definitely has a lot of sway. I'm going to come to it in a little bit, but I didn't actually double-check if the authors were overlapping. Very good points. Mm-hmm. So were the results similar from study to study? Uh, so there's a bit, bit of statistics now. So they did do a heterogeneity assessment. They used the standard one that Cochrane uses for their review, so it's you know, of good standard. They did a chi-squared result. So essentially this, to my understanding, and it's probably very simple for some of the people that are a bit more uh, statistically minded than I am, chi-squared is, is there a difference? You get three things back. You get a p-value, so how significant you get the chi-squared statistic and the degree of freedom. And what you're meant to look for is a similarity between the chi-squared and your degree of freedom. And what Cochrane wants is a non-significant p-value, and they want the difference of the chi-squared and degree of freedom to be less than one. So that's what that's, that means, no heterogeneity. Now, if you read through what this study, in the study it says, it says there is no, no problems with heterogeneity. Technically, they're slightly over one on the difference between degree of freedom. It's probably all right. The important bit about the chi-squared test is that if you have really low numbers of studies, such as four, the actual power to detect a difference isn't very high. They then did a second outcome, which was the I-square outcome, so, and that essentially is how different do the papers appear. For their primary outcome, they reported this at 25%. And when you look through Cochrane breaks down the into percentage groups, and this says it might not be important. What's that mean overall, which I guess is the real question? I think it says the studies are fairly similar. Similar within the subgroups when they broke down for secondary outcomes, um, but there was a bigger difference in between the populations when looking for a, a physical disability. And again, it's very interesting that when you look at the heterogeneity in the weights, but together the larger study is going to have the most pull on the results. So the meat of it, what were the results? Uh, so this is the table directly from the paper, and this is the primary outcome they were reporting on. They suggested there was an improvement in cognition at 18 to 24 months with the use of the prophylactic erythropoietin. They said there was an absolute risk reduction from 15.7% to 8.4%, and they gave a number needed to treat of 14. In terms of when we look at the box plot of the results, you actually see that out of the four studies, three of them have confidence intervals that go over the the one line, which suggests that three studies are showing a result that's not um, significant. Whereas if you look at the last study, which is the much larger study, that one is showing a significant result. And that's the study we had concerns about before in terms of possible bias. And I think that sort of swings their result. That study is much bigger. 
And uh, so they're, they're, they're getting a significant result from a study that we've got a little bit of confusion about. In terms of the subgroup analysis, I went through this very, very briefly. There is very small numbers across all the subgroups and no significant change in any subgroup. I suppose the subgroup we're probably most interested in is less than 28 weeks, and that population was really, really, really small. So I don't really think we can say anything from the subgroup analysis that shows any evidence one way or another. Um, so some things that the authors do, they do a really good job of pointing out the limitations. They talk about the large pull in the results to, due to that larger trial, and they talk about the high risk of bias within that trial. They do identify that there is a need for further research. So like I said before, dosing schedules were different. So actually, we don't know if the difference we're seeing between the trials is because of different dosing. We don't know which gestation this is going to benefit the most. Is there going to be a difference when you look at it in a 24-weeker compared to a 32-weeker? You know, is the, is the change going to be that actually we see this when they go to school in their teenage years doing their exams? There is a discussion by the author about current research and future research that's ongoing. And I think they probably draw a pretty good conclusion, which this is a, that erythropoietin is a promising potential. I think that's all they could say from the analysis here because of the problems with that trial. So the big question is, should we change our practice on neonatal unit? Should we be getting the erythropoietin out and getting it? My opinion is that the results look promising, but I am very concerned that that large study invalidates the result here, the lack of blinding and the change of outcomes. My other concern is that the population is very vast and very different. So I suspect what we're going to end up seeing is that some neonates could probably benefit from erythropoietin, but which ones and what doses we should be using, I don't think they're clear. So I don't think there's a change in our practice. There is a very large trial in the US this called the PEANUT trial that has literally just been published in the New England Journal. It showed that there was no significant difference at 24 months when they were looking at less than 28 weekers, which is you know, the group that's probably going to most benefit from neuroprotection. When Ina asked about editorials earlier, there's a tri trial by Neobaritel that looked at improvements in school-age children, and they were suggesting, are we actually looking at the wrong outcomes here? Do we need to be looking at development of uh, you know, five, six-year-olds, 12, 13-year-olds, that sort of thing? And I think, you know, therefore, we've still got a question that's not yet been answered you know, sufficiently, and we don't have an exact role to find for erythropoietin. And that was sort of my thoughts on the paper. I didn't know if anyone had any thoughts, Amy, Ina, or anyone else. Thank you for that, Jamie. I think that was a um, very good assessment of the paper. And I think it just goes to highlight some of the major pitfalls that you can have um, with a systematic review and meta-analysis, especially when you have a large, but probably poorly designed um, study that's contributing a significant weight towards your pooled study effects. And you have this concept of garbage in and garbage out where the results of your meta-analysis is only as valid and accurate as the um, studies that you put in. So if you have a high risk of bias from the largest study versus the higher quality but small sample size um, study, you'll definitely have that larger study overwhelming the the study effects um, and probably skewing it in in a different direction than you'd other, otherwise find. And it's not it's not just size. I should say it's important to look at the forest plot. So size is obviously a big factor. But if you have a one small study that has a very large effect size, then that can also maybe not to the same extent, but that will also affect the uh, the overall outcome of the forest plots. Yeah, that is true. In a 
to look at both of those things, like an outlier. As um, Jamie said, is to interpret with caution erythropoietin probably is a promising drug. The question is, have we really answered the question as to it being um, clinically effective in reducing the risk of um, neurodevelopmental adverse outcomes? Um, my other takeaway from this paper is that I guess the question of whether it was really a balanced approach and more focused on just neurodevelopment. We know that there's been some controversy already about whether erythropoietin, because of its androgenic effects, increases the risk of retinopathy of prematurity. Um, and I'm wondering why the authors didn't sort of consider that as one of the outcomes. I know that they were definitely just focusing on neurodevelopmental outcomes, but in terms of having a more balanced approach to the use of erythropoietin, whether it would have been useful to have something about the potential adverse effects of using this in preterm neonates. I don't know what anyone else's thoughts on that was. So I think that's a very good point. I guess you have to put what the context the research is in. If it's a key adverse event, then it should be considered, and there are statistical ways to, to do that. If that is not mentioned at all, then that would be a flaw. Dr. Mellon has asked in the chat how useful we found using the tool. It's useful for directing you to certain areas, you know, make sure you've looked at this. Uh, it's very useful in this type of format in terms of speaking to you guys about it because it gives us something to break stuff down into, especially when you're using, you know, groups of people. And the other bit was when it was directing you towards results to look at, you know, the box plots to look at um, heterogeneity. I think that was uh, really useful. This, this paper has defined other areas to look at for study, I think. It's not given us an answer itself. The one other thing I would either ask Jamie or, or maybe mention to you all as quite a useful thing, it's quite helpful if you have a think about search terms. So obviously Jamie mentioned that it's quite an important thing when you're doing literature reviews and you can computationally include and exclude certain studies. Did you find any useful resources that you could share about how to choose search terms and, and what databases to use, especially in the advent of huge pre-print kind of databases that really should be included in your search of databases now. Cochrane's got a quite nice setup. And so it's worth having an idea of how to go about that, what databases to look at, how to pick your search terms and keywords and things like that. The other things I'd mentioned were to think about when you're doing things in research in neonates. It's a very, very, very difficult research population. Neurodevelopment, again, really tricky. What age points do you use? You need to think about long follow-up times, diverse populations. And then my only point is that what Hugo said before about the large trial can change your results. And it, very importantly is if you put this systematic review in context of the peanut trial, your view almost changes completely on what it says. Thank you very much, everyone, for joining us for the second episode of our virtual journal club. I hope everyone had some useful um, learning points that they can take away from this. And barring any further questions in the chat section, I think we'll draw this to an end. Thank you all again and see you next month.